I'll go ahead and admit, the first time this one was requested, my first thought was, really? Okay, sure. I mean, I'm just kind of confused by it. I was already aware of the game, so none of the twists or whatever really caught me because my friend Pax had already played through it. So, you know, I was kind of prepped walking in because I never figured I'd play this game. Uh, nobody had even requested it for a stream, so it wasn't even on the potential list. But going through it, I actually enjoyed this way more than I thought I would. So allow, let's go ahead and say that this is kind of a quiet recommendation that you pick this one up, if you're interested in it. It's kind of like what Ride to Hell Retribution should have been if Ride to Hell Retribution had actually been a good game. <sighs> I know that doesn't sound like much praise because, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure Solitaire is a better game than Ride to Hell Retribution, but I do mean that. I, I, you know, it's it's what that kind of concept, that kind of genre should have been. Now, it is a post-apocalyptic, Grand Theft Auto-y kind of ride around, you know, interact with NPCs, do missions. If anything, the GTA comparison is probably the, the closest comparison I could think of, believe it or not. I don't even mean that as an insult, either. It's just, that's the style of gameplay. So if you're into that kind of thing, hey. Um, also, Mr. Whitwer, which I'm probably pronouncing his name incredibly wrong, who does the voice for Deacon, actually does a pretty good job of it. He has a thing where he talks to himself a lot based on what you're doing, what enemies you're fighting or if he sees a certain type of thing or if he's in a hurry or if he's injured or if he's trying to unlock something or whatever. He, he just kind of talks to himself. And at first I thought that would irritate me, but it kind of helped to fill the gaps, at least for like the first half of the game. Uh, it did get a little old, especially by the end. This is a fairly long game, all told. And being a PS4 game, you know, there's only so much I could do to speed that up. So that is something to be taken with a grain of salt. I do have to say, though, there's a couple things this game does very, very well. First of all, you do get a bit of a variety of weapons, which was fun to play with. My big setup was basically one SMG and one sniper rifle because, well, because heavies are a problem. <laughs> and, and every now and again, it's like, okay. But um, the third-person shooting worked pretty well. Even despite the fact that it's a PS4, that's usually one of my biggest complaints about these type of games, is I do not like aiming on an analog. I never have, and I never will. And I still don't hear, but it was okay for the most part. Um, I didn't have any particular issues going through it. I will also say that the biking gameplay was surprisingly fun. Some of you may know that I'm a bit of a ship guy, as in I like ships. I, I like, you know vessels, usually space, also naval. So the bike is basically the ship of this game. And I, again, I don't mean that facetiously. You can set it up, customize it, get parts, you know, blah, blah, blah. You maintain it, you get the fuel, and it's what you do to get around. And of course, you can kind of use it in combat, literally running into or over certain enemies. So it was it was the ship of the game, and I enjoyed that, actually. And I never had any issues with fuel or any other problems, so you know, that kind of worked pretty well as well. That being said, there is one... I, I don't have much to say about the gameplay, per se. Because, I mean, it, GTA, there you go, there's, there's the gameplay. I can talk about how the game doesn't really have boss fights in the strictest sense. But again, that's kind of like Grand Theft Auto, which, rather than having a boss fight, will have you fight through wave after wave of the mooks of a particular boss, and then you'll go ahead and fight the boss. Now, I know there's the Super Freakers. I actually can't even remember their name right now that you fight. Those are effectively a boss fight. But for the most part, like, I mean, even the final boss of the game is just another dude, right? But that works. That works, and it fits, and I'm not complaining. But I do have to talk about the hordes, because those were probably the best part of the game for me overall, and I mean that with total sincerity. Let me tell you a bit of a story. 
some of you who have actually played this game, you'll, you'll probably get where this is going before I finish it. So I'm just roaming around. And I'm like, oh, hey, there's a sawmill. Okay, yeah, sure. I mean, there might be some crafting materials in there. There might be some recipes or something. It's a sawmill, right? I mean, if nothing else, there's probably some kind of resources. Da, 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 da. And it's quiet. There's nothing going on. And, okay, for those of you not aware, uh, there is a horde in the sawmill. And so I get really close to this place, and I'm just kind of taking my time. I'm completely relaxed. Like, I have no... There's no, oh, God, there's enemies around the corner. This is just, I'm just roaming around looting flowers, right? To use, to use the Elder Scrolls equivalent. And all of a sudden, <laughs> now, I actually didn't die, but I backpedaled like crazy. Just, go, get, get, get the SMG, get the SMG. Oh, God, no, no, I need the, I need the, okay, get the full machine gun, get the full auto going. Oh, God, oh, God. And what happened was, like, I, I swear at least five minutes, which probably doesn't sound like a long time. But five minutes of frantic backpedaling as the horde continues to advance on me. There's just this extended kiting scenario of just, okay, I'm gonna get up to the roof, get up to the roof. Oh, okay, they're still following me. Shoot them as they come up, shoot them as they come up, backing up, back. Oh god, they're behind me. They're behind me. <laughs> it was really fun. And it's probably uh, the one part of this game that I would say is most noteworthy when it comes to the gameplay axis. Because the rest of it's just kind of there. I mean, I, I don't mean that as an insult. It's good. But there's nothing notable about it. It's like, hey, so here's a post-apocalyptic pseudo-open world game. I say pseudo, by the way. Even though this is an open world, it feels a little bit more hub-based than open world tends to be. And again, that's not really a complaint. It's just, it's interesting. I mean, you go from one camp to the next camp to the third camp and then to the final camp. And I mean, that you, you can see why I call it a hub-based sort of thing. But anyways, anyways, getting back to the point. <clears throat> Most of the rest of that, it was just, okay, this is fun. But those horde fights, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, you have to fight a few of those as part of the main quest. And you can just bungle into a few as well. Oh my goodness. And you ever fight a horde in a cave... That is a terrifying experience, especially since you can't see, like, five feet in front of you, which, just picture that for a second. If you will, remember, so for those who haven't played this game and are just listening to me, the Freakers, that's the name for the zombies in this game, the Freakers are of the fast and strong variety. So I'm not talking, no, when I'm talking a horde, this is Left for Dead style, for those of you who played that. Just just climbing over each other, swarming like ants to run at you at full pace. Uh, yeah, but it's very fun. I, I love it. And of course, I got into the habit very early on, and this is admittedly partially thanks to Pax, to always have at least one Molotov on me, because holy crap. Moving on. <clears throat> God, where do I start with the story? The story is what I would call very typical, but I don't mean that as an insult. As I've said many, many times, I don't care if you do something cliched. I don't care if you do something typical or expected. I care how well you do it. There's a lot of scenes in this film, in this game, that feel like a film, like a typical action film. But it still manages to hit the emotional and narrative beats well enough that I'm with it. And I think a lot of that is under the strength of the voice acting and the voice directing, which is pretty much phenomenal throughout the whole thing. Uh, almost everyone who talks, it, the dialogue sounds like natural human dialogue, which works for me, basically. Like This is actually something my friend Pax complained about because he was tired of him talking like a normal human being who doesn't usually say full and complete sentences that are proper grammar. Right? Instead, um, they kind of, well, they sort of talk, and then sometimes they stop a sentence, but then 
they start another one. <laughs> you know, people just kind of meander their way through conversations, and that's how a lot of the dialogue is written. It, but for me, that worked. It was very natural, very human. And again, the excellent voice acting really helped to add to this. A lot of cussing, a little bit too much cussing, but again, it's a Grand Theft Auto game, so what are you going to do? The uh, Let's start by talking about the Rippers, because, as I mentioned, cliches, right? So you, you got the typical, well, the apocalypse happened, so we went bonkers group. And this is probably my biggest complaint about the story overall, is the Rippers felt almost completely unnecessary to the narrative. You could have just ejected them from the narrative entirely, and I'm not sure I would have even noticed, with the sole exception of the way that they helped to establish uh, just how far gone Iron Mike is. Now, yes, I know, Iron Mike obviously went through a lot of crap with the Sherman's camp, but... Iron Mike and Taylor, actually, are probably good examples of this. Both of them feel like extremes to help showcase a point. Mike was extremely pacifistic. Like, he almost didn't accept being violent at all. He obviously does turn around to our idea, Deacon's idea, of going ahead and shutting down the caves to try and deal with some of the freaker problem. But, for the most part, he is way too willing to uh, turn the other cheek. Now, I point that out because his extremism on that is literally what gets him killed, thanks to Schizo. For those of you who haven't played this, I'll go ahead and elucidate. He decides to go ahead and allow Schizo, who we'll talk about in a second, to go after Schizo is a horrible human being. Schizo then comes back and kills them. <laughs> like, in a, even in real life, there's a certain point at which you have to not reach out a hand, basically, is the nicest way to put that. Um, and I think this game does a good job of showcasing it. I would say, in fact, I would say it is the biggest and most dominant theme of the game overall is the idea of moderation, which I know sounds like a weird statement, but what I mean by that is most of the people, it's kind of Bioshocky, most of the people who adhere to an ideology to an extreme are shown as being wrong, whereas the people who actually manage to, to do a little bit of a middle ground are right. Uh, let me use another example of this. So we've got Gorman versus Sarah. Now, Gorman, I want to talk about him first because I have more to say about Sarah. We, I don't think we even see Gorman. I, I didn't see him. I know there's some side stuff you can get for getting a little bit of additional lore, but I didn't see anything about that. Anyways, Gorman is basically the guy who started everything, right? He was like, I'm going to be this big whistleblower and I'm going to stop the evil empire and it's going to be great. And he starts the apocalypse. He was so blinded by his own idealism that he pushed it to an extreme and did something without really thinking about it. I suppose that's the other thing you could say is the theme, is doing things without thinking about it, because that leads to him uh, you know, infecting the conference, which leads to them infecting the planes and the airports. And, well, as soon as this kind of virus gets into an airport, that's kind of the end of it, right? Yeah. The other thing to mention, although actually while I'm on the subject, you notice O'Brien mentioned quarantine zone. This is a quarantine zone. He implies that there's some places that haven't been infected by this. Food for thought. I'll talk more about O'Brien later. Anyways, <clears throat> to use another example, before I move on to Sarah, uh, I mentioned Taylor in brief earlier, the junkie, right? Taylor's, well, I don't want to say he's an extreme, but... Taylor serves more as a showcasing of other people's ideology. You'll notice Deacon went ahead and acquiesced to allowing the kid to be, you know, 
overdosed to death rather than hanged to death. And we do see how they do the hanging. They, they try to make it a point that you, you actually strangle to death rather than, you know, the neck snapping kind of a thing. So you just sit there and everyone laughs and salutes and blah, blah, blah. And uh, it's a pretty horrible way to go. And he's just sitting there begging not to go through it. It's, it's, and it's funny because it's, again, very human. He's not begging for mercy per se. In fact, you could say he's literally begging for grace, to use the more literal definition of the word, because he knows he's done wrong. He knows there's no mix fixing it. He knows there's no coming around. He, act, he killed, accidentally or otherwise, that's up to you to decide. He killed the, the, the medic. What are you going to do with him, right? <clears throat> now, you know what? Let me come back to Taylor. I, I want to come back to him, because he, he's relevant for another character we'll get to. Let's talk about Sarah. Sarah is probably, I, I think they did a very good job of designing her in contrast to Deacon. Because while both of them are very take-charge kind of individuals, they work very well together and they have completely different skill sets, and they both know that. I mean, it's not like she can't handle a gun. You saw what she did to Jim. But she's, you know, more scientific and she's more precise and she's more analytical. She's the kind of person that will if she's going to kill you, there's a pretty good chance you are not going to see it coming. Deacon's going to charge your camp with a bomb on a truck and come in with guns blazing. And thus we see the variance between the two. It's a variance of approach, but it's not a variance of competency. And I think that's one of the things I like most about her as a character, is the fact that she is just as competent as the main character. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if, there was, if they ever decided to make a sub-game where we play as her, where it's more stealth and... Uh, kind of hitman focused almost, you know, if, as in the hitman series, not literally a hitman, although I guess it could be. But point, point, point in fact, you'll notice that even though we take out the militia camp, she's the one who kills Garrett. I actually found that a little bit surprising, but I, I did like it in hindsight, because the idea is that the final boss, again, was just a dude with a bunch of other dudes. The final boss was the camp, in short, in typical Grand Theft Auto set fashion. We're not fighting some tank or some super mutant. Just going through the camp. But the act, it, Garrett, and I was actually surprised Garrett wasn't the final boss. It was Schizo. But then that does make sense. Killing Garrett doesn't really solve anything per se here. We killed Schizo out of revenge. He was, it was a personal vendetta thing, as we say when we kill him, you know, they won't enjoy this. Uh, yeah. And the, the final mission does a good job of evoking within the player a very sense of righteous anger, which is probably one of the reasons why the boozer fake-out really pissed me off so much, but I'm getting off topic. Getting back to the point, Sarah kills Garrett and he never sees it coming. He literally has her at gunpoint and she still kills him without him ever seeing it coming. That's Sarah in a nutshell right there. Now by contrast, Deacon, who I haven't really talked about a lot, Deacon's interesting. Garrett's overall thematic point was that people are scum, and there needs to be a cleansing, right? There needs to be you know, purge them all. Now, on the one hand, you could see why he says that, because people like the Rippers exist, or Schizo, or his own militia. Think about how many members of his own militia just kind of go along with things. They're just like, yeah, okay, we'll go torture and kill other people, because that's what, there's a line, I wrote it down, I wrote it down. Uh, we follow orders, that's how it has to be. By the way, is it just me? He has the stars of a general, not a colonel. Anyways, um, <clears throat> and thus Garrett's point is ironically made by himself. 
that his own troops are so horrible that he is correct in the fact that you know man is the true evil, blah, blah, blah. As you notice, I haven't really talked about the Freakers at all, and I won't until we get to the end of this rumination. It's because, as always, in my opinion, the zombies are usually the least interesting part of any zombie apocalypse story. It's what we do with everything else. It's how people react to it, you know, blah, blah, blah. The telltale thing, right? and by telltale, I mean Walking Dead, which is also a telltale thing, but you get my point. In this case, I feel like Garrett is... Again, he is an extremist, and I do want to stress that. But you can kind of see why he thinks the way he does. He is more relatable than he should be. He serves as a nice contrast to Schizo. Schizo's a scumbag. He's designed to be hated, and he's designed to be killed. Again, the personal vendetta thing. Garrett is designed to be more of a mouthpiece for an ideology. And I think that's the final reason why him not being the final boss makes sense to me. And, of course, it then makes sense that Sarah is the one who kills him. <clears throat> but anyways, and I'm looking at my notes here. Here's the thing, though, and I do have a question for you. I usually have a question for you when it comes to these kind of ruminations. Do you think Garrett was right? Because the game also shows that Garrett is wrong. There's a bit where Boozer... I don't have much to say about Boozer. I liked Boozer. He, he was my bro, you know? But I don't have much else to say about that. He was a good bro character. Um, there was a bit where Boozer and, and, and Deacon are you know, preparing to take, out, take on the militia by themselves, and everyone else who Deacon has been helping has shown up. Now, it's not just the fact that they're here to help him, although that is relevant. It's also worth noting that they are here to help him because he helped them. Throughout the course of the game, Deacon goes around and does everything he can to try and make people's lives better. The one and only time, I shouldn't say the one and only time, the one and only major point of contention would be the Tucker camp thing, because Tucker's a horrible human being. <clears throat> but you know what I mean, right? Deacon actually goes around, and despite the way he is presented, despite the apocalypse, despite the fact that he's this coarse, grizzled, you know, biker dude, he goes out of his way to help people at every opportunity. And they help him back. In, in almost every case, the people he helps tend to reciprocate, tend to form a community rather than a dictatorship. And I point that out. Because even some of his own militia do this. Weaver is probably the most obvious example here. Even his own militia tends to lean in that direction in some cases. So you could argue that the game is making the point that Garrett is wrong. And this is overall my point. This goes back to what I started off with. The, the idea of moderation. The idea that Garrett is right and wrong. And my printer just moves for no reason. I don't even know what that's all about. But you get my point? The idea here is that Garrett is right and wrong. That there is not simply one ideology that applies universally or unilaterally. That instead, you must take everything on a case-by-case -case basis. What are you doing, Brenner? <laughs> Might have to unplug you? I apologize. My printer has been taken over by the Freaker virus. And I think that that's one of the reasons why the story stuck with me as well as it did. Because I like that mentality. I like the perspective of thinking of things in complexity rather than simplicity. Because it is a simple mindset to look at something and say, well, this is always true. It is a complex mindset to say, well, this might be true, depending on the circumstances. Let's look at the individual. Let's look at the, let's look at the, the group. Let's look at the consequences. Let's look at the mentality. Let's look at the motivation. Let's look at the reactions. 
And I think that the game does a surprisingly good job of analyzing this theme. I'm not going to cover every single individual point, but it comes up all the time, throughout, especially throughout the little uh, the, the camp quests you do as you push through, your way through the game. And this, is, this brings me to Schizo, which is the, one of the last characters I really want to talk about. I'm looking at my notes here. There's there's some really good scenes during the militia uh, assault, the final mission. I actually took like three or four notes just on that final mission. It was really good. Um, I love the quiet grief at Boozer's death. I hate the fact that Boozer lived. Um, <clears throat> I mean, come on, game. But I do like the way they portrayed the, the quiet grief there. It's too often, this is, goes back to the human dialogue and the voice acting thing, too often when someone dies... For some reason, fiction thinks the way you react to that is by going, no! But instead, Deacon is quiet and, and almost just disbelieving, like, no. No. Boozer. You know, he's just, there's just this disbelief there. And then, of course, he follows the disbelief immediately with rage. And that is extremely human. But that brings me to Schizo. Schizo is probably, he's the kind of character that you are, you are designed to hate him. And I've actually known people like Schizo in real life, and I have to admit I hated his guts, and it was very satisfying to kill him, because he is pathetic and sniveling and whiny, and he is a coward, and he's just, there's nothing good about him, basically. He, he makes excuses. He pleads. He taunts. You can tell that there's no center to him. He's just rambling about whatever comes to mind. Uh, and there's just a... The, the reason I'm bringing up Schizo second to last here is because Schizo is ultimately the greatest parallel... Or, sorry, wrong word. He is the greatest contrast to Deacon, the main character. Deacon is this coarse, grisly biker who shoots people and cusses. Schizo is this coarse, disgusting human being, you know, militia man, former member of the Iron Mike crew, who shoots people and cusses. And it just, you can see how you look at them like, aha, but Deacon's core is completely different, as I elucidated on earlier. He is actually a decent human being. Schizo is the opposite. Schizo is scum. Schizo is the kind of person who, he's not even evil in the traditional sense. He's not what you think of when you evoke the word evil. He's self-interested to the point of what I would consider evil, but it's all motivated by himself and his own selfish nature. He doesn't, he's not malicious. Instead, it is, I will feed you to the, to the freakers in order to get away in time. Not because I hate you or because I want you to die, but because that'll get me away in time. It's a, and he's just this, he's a very classic type three villain in his own way. And it, it's wonderful. Parallel, uh, parallel. I keep saying that we're wrong. There's a wonderful contrast to the main character and to basically all the other characters too, because we see a lot of other variances to him. Now, I mentioned Taylor in brief. The reason I wanted to bring up Taylor is because Taylor is, in many ways, the similar similarity to Schizo, in the fact that you know he's a mess and he's not really a good human being. You know, he does kill the doctor, right? The difference in the contrast here is if Schizo had done what Taylor had done. If Schizo was in Taylor's position, let me put it that way, Schizo would have been like, no, you don't understand, I, I had to do it, it was, it was just it was what was needed, right? I mean, I don't understand why this is a problem, 
you don't understand, man. You know, he would have constantly been trying to continue to push the angle of what is effectively self-delusion, that he doesn't deserve to be punished for what he knows he has done wrong. By contrast, Taylor knows he has done wrong, knows he has to be punished, and all he is begging for is that he doesn't go out in a particular manner, because that's all he's got. Now, the final thing I want to talk about is, uh, well, it's actually two things. So first of all, I did a little digging, and I've seen interviews, and I've seen uh, the, you know, the New Game Plus thing that they added, which, which actually was added a little bit late for me, but I mean, whatever. You know, New Game Plus is always good, woo! But they also added the new Siphon Filter gun, and there's a lot of Siphon Filter references. Now, I was never really big into the Siphon Filter series, but I'm aware of it. And I was trying to codify, does this actually happen as a legitimate sequel to the series? And the answer is, uh... Like, unless I missed something, which is entirely possible, maybe by the time this video goes live, because I do these well in advance, obviously, maybe by the time that this video goes live, someone will have actually confirmed or denied this formally and officially. But all I saw was that this game feels like it's doing a lot of winking and a lot of nudging in the direction of Siphonfelder, but nothing actually codified. Which brings me to O'Brien. As I mentioned earlier, the zombies are usually the least interesting thing when it comes to a zombie apocalypse. With one exception in this game. Basically, I have a question for you. Do you think the government types, the Nero, the, the groups that Nero represents, do you think that they were already freakers? Already the evolved humans? Or do you think that they were specifically crafting this virus for this purpose and just happened to keep crafting it? Now, the latter seems like the obvious, especially given the fact that they infect O'Brien. You know, no one can stop them. They're coming. But and we're getting into a little Resident Evil territory here, aren't we? But I bring this point up because I find the idea fascinating that the, this particular government, you know, conspiracy, whatever it is, you know, the cabal of, of the syndicate, there we go, we'll get the X-Files term in, that the syndicate was already mutating with the virus, that the, that the work that Sarah and Gorman were working on that ended up spreading throughout the, the world and destroying the world was just them trying to affect mutations or variances onto the virus, that they themselves already were this new form of human evolution or, or mutation is actually a better word to admit, but they would probably call it evolution because they're stupid. But you know what I mean. Like They were already freakers and they were just trying to pre more precisely design and codify it. And now that the world has a lot less people in it, well... Now we got to have a plan B, don't we? Food for thought. I'd be curious what you guys think, as always. But that is all I've got. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on this surprisingly good game. I will see you next time.